0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows, and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill
1: Podcasts ordinary people's extraordinary stories.
0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Marsha. So, Marsha, if you can tell me when. Or where you were born, mm-hmm. if you could describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education you received. Because you're oh. 80, we don't ask where you, when you were born, but where. Oh, I can tell you, it's fine.
1: It's fine. I was I was born in 19
0: 19- younger than me. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> it's all good. I was born in 1970. I was born in Chatham, Ontario, Canada. And oh. at, yeah, at that time, um, Chatham was. Chatham
0: here in England, you know.
1: Oh, I did not
0: know that. Yeah, Chatham. It's over in Kent. Okay. And, um, I... It's been there a long, 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 long time. Um, I mean, Henry VIII used to keep one of his boats there, and uh, they used to have um, all sorts of ships run out, run out just off the Thames, actually, Chatham. So there you go.
1: Well, it's funny because outside of where i lived in chatham was kent county. Mm, yeah there you
0: go. yeah so the county of kent the garden of england.
1: <laughs> oh wow. so where i lived was it i mean it was a city and um we lived on the outskirts there was some farm area around us and, but Chatham was very much um, factory industrial cars was a lot of um, jobs in that way. And I lived there until I was 10. So I grew up in an area where, you know, we would go to the YMCA. We would do things like where we had access to things. Like we were definitely more access to things as in our schools and what we could do and sports. And um, I mean, I was still definitely a, I was under 10 when we moved. I think we moved when I was nine or 10 years old.
0: Mm.
1: So in that area, you know, we were in, we were bussed on, uh, in our buses. We were in um, fairly big schools. It was what I knew as as a, as a kid. So when I was 10, my... So go these ahead. buses, would they, they like the... The, the big yellow
0: bus yes. that the, you see in the, all the films, the same as they've got in America. Uh-huh. Right?
1: Very, very big. A big. Handle
0: that opens the door, and there's a big scary driver in there that, <laughs> that, that you yeah, don't muck about. <laughs>
1: Yes, I can say it was definitely, I mean, we were on buses all the time. It was nothing to be on school buses, to be on city buses. It was just something that we did. Um, I can say for timing's sake, um, I was very much a vibrant redhead when I was a kid. And in 1970, like in the 70 to 79, when I was in school, there was only a couple of us in all of school. That was not the norm like we definitely were different ah. whereas now it's nothing to see redheads it's really not it's not anything di- but it was very different then and I was very much the brunt of a ton of jokes a ton of I was the only redhead in my whole family so you don't want to know how I many times milkman jokes milkman jokes is what I heard <laughs> <laughs> I know
0: so being a redhead I guess you must have some Scottish Somewhere along my line.
1: Yes, I have Scottish. Um, That's a big joke in my family. I definitely have Scottish. I am born in April. So I'm an Aries, if you follow any astrology, which is a ram, which is very true. I'm very much a ram. Um, Yeah, I am. So redheaded, stubborn, Aries, ram. Was who I was then, and still who I am now. And <laughs> it's funny because a lot of a lot of people that I knew that would think it would be the worst thing in the world to be the redhead, to be different, um, to be teased all the time. I actually didn't mind being different. It was it was something that I I didn't mind, but it was definitely the brunt of many jokes as as when I was younger. And then I um, so I think I guess,
0: it was very- I guess your name. Helped along the way as well.
1: It did. I was trying to remember. I think I was born before the Brady Bunch. I think I was born right when the Brady Bunch started or right before. And so my name was different. Marsha was different. And that was something that then, of course, as the Brady Bunch came, I was. Would forever hear like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Have you ever heard that? I'm like, yes, yes, I've heard it. Yes, I've heard it. Pretty much most of the time, I've heard it. To <laughs> um, so my mom used to always say, "No, we we named you before. We named you before the show the, before the show came out."
0: So, That's where they got a name from on the show.
1: I don't know. That must be it. That must be it. But I liked it. I liked having a different name. I liked having red hair, and I didn't mind being different. Like it was definitely. But in the time that I grew up, I think it's safe to say. Um, that kids were to be seen, not heard. They were not to, you know, no, don't speak up, no opinions, no, just be quiet. That was very much like that's not just our home. I'm pretty sure that was the norm. And so um,
0: when I grew up as a kid. Yeah. we say they're not heard, speaking yes. spoken to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. corporal punishment was the order order of the day. Yep.
1: It was definitely the order of the punishment at the time. Um, yeah, 100%. That's, that's what life was like. It's it's hard to explain to people now because it's like, oh, no, the belt was the norm. That was there. Um, that's what was done. I take it or leave it. But it's just a fact of what it was. Um, so it was fairly strict home, but I grew up in a time, my mom worked full-time too, which is not something that was common then. So my mom worked full-time and during that time, um, if I look back, I can see, and I, I remember very vividly, she still did probably hundred percent of all of the home responsibilities, meals taking care of us. So, you know, that was, that had to be a lot harder for her than what um, was ever given or acknowledged for. And so I used to, I can never understand. I remember questioning it many times when I was a, when I was a child saying, I don't understand why does mom have to do everything when she works full time too? Like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And Um, yeah, I grew up in a time where there was many comments about that, but I just, I didn't understand it.
0: Did you pick up a lot of chores then?
1: Oh, you, are you kidding? (laughs) Like chores were when I was younger. I mean, if we wanted to watch cartoons on Saturday morning, which is a big thing, it was never allowed until everything was done. And you didn't even think to question whether you wanted to do the chores or not. It wasn't a choice. Like it was not a choice. It's just a fact. And so, I mean, we grew up from a very young age having a ton of chores that we had a lot of responsibility. And I just assumed that was part of it. That was, that was the norm. So between, you know, being a child, going to school, playing, doing things like that because you're still young. Um, but we all had big responsibilities in the house. The, that mm. It kept the house going because everybody had responsibilities.
0: So let's have a look at your school. So what was your, um, uh, was it like kindergarten, elementary? Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, there was kindergarten, elementary, and um, at that school, I think I stayed. I was at the same school from kindergarten, elementary, grade one, grade two, grade three, and then we moved part way through grade four. Uh
0: huh.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what was uh, what was uh, that first schooling like? What was your favorite? What was your favorite lesson during that time?
1: Uh-huh. I loved um I was such a perfectionist kid. I I mean everything from like printing from um crafts from um I I ended up really starting to learn like science and um numbers and math. It was easy for me. So I did like that. Um I vividly remember this. Like it's funny because I forget about this and then you just um, prompted the thinking is when I was in grade three, we had, um, special needs kids were in all of our classes. One of the boys who was in our class was actually on the, um, Jerry Lewis, Telethon. He was on. The, he was on Jerry Lewis' telephone, and so we actually would have um, every child had a day that you he was your responsibility to help. And I look back at that, and I think I know times are different. But that completely opened us and exposed us to so many different um, people with different needs, different populations. And I still think that that was actually very, very important from a young age. There was no um, segregation, teasing, anything like that. We actually, we, we grew, that's, that was the norm. It was like that was my day to take care of everything that were his needs. So I think there's an advantage. I know things aren't done like that now, but that was a very interesting time, and that was the norm for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So that was that was instilled in you from a fairly early age. Then, Even yes, I was. They was taking a mickey out of you because of the colour of your hair.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> the the uh, the special needs kid in the class got off light then.
1: Yes, he did get it off right. He did, he did. We just, we just really spent time taking care of each other, and um, I just remember it being a fun time. I remember it being a fun time. It was very early memory for me though, because I said we moved when I was nine, and then when we moved, my parents moved us for a job opportunity to. Um, oh, I should back up because I think this is a neat part of the story. Sorry. There was a time, I think it was in grade two. My parents were able to, um, buy a house that was going to be torn down. This was their house that they bought and they were able to buy it for a dollar because it was going to be torn down. They bought the house and they moved the house. So I remember as a kid seeing this house put on a truck and being moved across the city. And that was our house. But at the time I, yes, it cost them to move the house and do, and buy the property and all the things, but the opportunity to buy a house that was available for a dollar was something. I remember my dad, my dad has been an entrepreneur his whole life. At that time, he was like, it's impossible to pass it up it's meant for us so I remember it took a whole summer to move that house to get the foundation to get it settled to move the house and that's where we lived for the rest of the time that we were in living in Chatham
0: so they got the old uh, the mega movers in then to, to sort of just jack the whole thing up yeah. stick it on the back of a truck and drive yeah. it across the city
1: yeah, <laughs> it was very unheard of, right? It was very unheard of. It was probably 75, um, very unheard of, but it was also an opportunity to, like they were going to tear it down. They mm-hmm. they didn't want it. Um, they were building up another business property and it was available. And he said, "Let's let's take it and make it happen. So it took a good chunk of the summer for that to be moved and settled. So I remember that, I do remember that as a kid because it was a very... Everybody thought it was really funny that my parents were moving a house, but that's yeah. that was our house.
0: Puts a slightly different spin on moving house, doesn't it? it? Moving does. home. <laughs> <laughs>
1: move the whole thing. Yes.
0: <laughs> How yes. Do people want that? It's sort all of the house that I've grown up in and, and loved. And then and then you move in house and you, you move move the house. Yeah. the newer lo- location.
1: And we moved it to a location where it was like backing onto farm. Um, We still were in the city limits, but we were on the outskirts. And so we were able to get, you know, we had a big yard. Um, We had, they put a pool in and that's just where we did everything was, was at the house. It was, yeah, I remember that.
0: So did you use the pool as a skating ring during the winter?
1: No, we did not. No, it was above ground, so no, we did not. <laughs> it was, no, nope. but we swam like all summer. That's what we did. Mm. We, we lived in that pool.
0: Like fish?
1: Mm-hmm, very much like fish. Very much like fish.
0: So did you go to the same school? Uh, yeah. Just jump on a different bus?
1: Um, yeah, say, I went to the same school. Um, yes, I, <clears throat> yes, I did, and just was on a different bus. So I stayed at that
0: same school. So you're still having the Mickey taken out of you and still having to look after the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the yep. special needs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do remember that very well. So it was fun. It was fun, and it was such a, in a lot of ways, probably a very simple time. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's move on a little bit. Let's, let's, let's move up a school. What about yep. middle school? <laughs>
1: okay. I, so when I was 10, we moved to an area outside of Tilsonburg, Ontario, Canada, um, an area called um, Stratfordville and Tilsonburg. So Tilsonburg has about twelve to 14,000 people. So I went from this big city where I had access to all kinds of things where my friends were. And then we moved to a farm and we lived on this farm. And a true farm. And it was such a a new experience to live. Now all of a sudden it's like we've got a neighbor across the street and then there's nobody for a long time. And then I went to a school that um, until grade, the end of grade eight, so from four till eight, I went to a school that was in a place called Straffinville, and it was one school. Like it was one school where all the grades were, not very big. And that's where I went until I went to high school when I went to Tilsomirk. So my world changed a lot. I know I didn't love my parents for the change. I know I was like, I was a challenging time because your entire life changes, right? Everything is different.
0: Yeah. I guess they didn't move the house for a second time then.
1: It did not move the house for a second time. No, they did not. They did not. (laughs) no
0: had to to leave the pool behind and
1: Mm -hmm. everything everything changed we lived there for a number of years um at that time and then we moved to another house again but um yeah it's it was a it was 1980 and then like 1980 to 86 to 89, you know, it was some very challenging economic times. Very, like very, very high interest rates of mortgage. It was, I can see all that now as an adult. When I was a kid, I didn't understand it. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, your middle schooling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: what was your favorite class? What one did you get up to in the morning and can't wait to get to?
1: <laughs> Math, science and gym. Yeah. Math, science, and gym. I loved, um, I was, I was very analytical. I loved the, you know, figure out the problem and how the body works and moving fitness movement have always been a big part of my whole life. And I loved our high school. Like I, I remember high school and I mean, yeah, definitely some challenging times, but I loved doing that. And during high school was when I had a teacher who I still remember him. Um, he's since passed, but he, um, introduced me to what kinesiology was. And that was like the study of human movement and human body. And I became so fascinated with it, um, that it became a big part of my focus. And then I ended up taking that into university. So I was the first um, person in my family to go to university and, yeah, yeah, and took an honours Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. Mm -hmm. Let's just go back
0: back just a little bit to to, to sort of uh, just move on from from the middle school to, to your high school then. Okay. What one did you stay in bed for? That you didn't want to get up and rush to school to do English. You didn't like English.
1: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, you know what, English and history, I'm not gonna lie, it was like the way the way history was taught was was just boring to me i just didn't it didn't um it didn't spark a lot for me which is really funny because my husband and i will watch different documentaries and different things on history now i actually quite like it to learn but i didn't i didn't care for it then definitely english and definitely history Mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah
0: so what sort of periods in history were they teaching that you didn't really like what was what was the the system that they were to was it just all reading out of books
1: just reading out of books, just very much reading out of books. Um, to me, not I am always fascinated by like the stories, the backstories, the actual like that's the stuff that would have definitely piqued more of my interest. This was just more stats, facts, um, with no depth, yeah. with with no depth. And and I think that's for me is I always about the story. I love hearing and learning the backstories of it and that would have probably sparked a little bit more interest for me um but again I was just so analytical that it was easier for me to just logically look at things like math and science mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so you, you mentioned that um, you, you're more interested in history nowadays so what period of
1: history oh Oh no, don't! No, no, no. I feel like this is a quiz. Um, <laughs> we we've watched all different kinds of like different documentaries. I think we've seen Band of Brothers a couple of times. We've watched a few. Um, my husband has a whole slew of them that he loves, and there are some I sit down and I just love learning backstories of World War II. And different um times in history. We went to when we were in Washington a number of years ago, we went to the Auschwitz Museum. Like I don't think it's called Auschwitz Museum, but it maybe it is. And we we spent, I know this sounds very, it might not sound it's not positive, but we spent the day and not just going through it, like reading. I wanted to see and understand how things led to get to where they did like, and I found it's, it was, it's hard. Pardon me. It was hard, but I like learning like that. I like understanding um, how did things come to be the way that they did. And it didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen overnight when you really start to read that backstory and see how he came into power. It, it, to me, I just, I just like to learn that way and see the whole story. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's quite uh, it's quite a thing to understand how the Second World War came about. I mean, it's you know, we we joke about it with uh, the Germans that they started it, and they said, "No, we didn't," and they said, "Yes, you did. You invaded Poland." But it it goes back a long way before then. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, it goes back to sort. Of, I guess just after the Second World, uh, after the First World War, where there was a uh just a jumped up little corporal in the uh in the Austrian army and and how he's thinking where he got locked up and then he wrote wrote Mein Kampf and and then pushed his ide- ideology. It, it, Germany was on its knees at the time and, and he gave them some hope and uh yeah, they followed like sheep, unfortunately. And uh we ended up where we did
1: yeah it's it's like i said i know it's a difficult topic um but i know as an adult like i i definitely we watch and learn and that's i do i i feel almost especially if it's a story that i hear and it's a war story or and they, especially if they say it's based on a true story i almost feel like I owe it to somebody to watch that because that's a story that is, that deserves to be shared. And it's a story that deserves to be heard. Um, so, yeah, I, it's funny because I do definitely watch more um, different history documentaries now than I would have ever thought that I would.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I find with documentaries are okay, but but uh, films, mm-hmm. um, particularly Films made in Hollywood, they 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 tend to put the Hollywood spin on it. Yes, they do. They they they, they tend to use far too much poetic license,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, and I prefer to watch a something like the Sharp series uh, for the Peninsula Wars, where they they kind of don't jazz it up too much, um, and it's it, they give you a, a really good insight into what history was like at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the sort of thing, sort of the realistic side of it, rather than the, the the Hollywood yes tinted glasses, rose tinted glasses look at stuff. Yes, so yeah. So let's 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 take it back slightly back to uh, to high school. Mm-hmm. So, um, did you do any theatre and or oh, music during that time, or, or was the school not big enough for that?
1: Um, we had a band. There was a, like, there was a small theater part to it. I would say my, they were, they existed. We also had, I don't think they have it anymore, but we also had, you know, shop, home ec, um, a lot of things that, you know, I think that some kids would never have been exposed to using a sewing machine. They don't know how to even, thread a button onto something um so we had home ec cooking basics i actually quite liked home ec, not because it was a, i just liked learning different things and i i've been the cook in my family even since when i was younger so i'm sure that was probably where that partly came from so that was home ec in um and then um we had shop and we, you took it, even if everybody had to have a requirement and it was great to learn the basics of like, Hammer, screwdriver, saw—like just, just the basics. Um, we were exposed to all those things, and I don't think it was much long after that 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 was all gone. Um, I don't know when it was gone, but I know it's not available now. It's not something that they do.
0: Yeah, I think I think they they done away with it. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. beginning of the two thousands, maybe mm-hmm. around about there. I mean, I don't know why why they dropped the uh, the, the sort of woodwork, metal work cookery
1: auto like auto class I took an auto class like think of that basics like how I mean yeah I'm certainly not the one doing work on my car but I had some basics
0: yeah mm-hmm. they, don't, they They seem to have gone away from that There are schools mm-hmm. nowadays whether they can't afford to do it nowadays I mean I mean kids nowadays can't even boil a cow to make a cup of tea
1: <laughs> no, they can't. It's actually scary. It's actually
0: really scary. What, what, what are kids going to be like in the future? I don't know. Where they're not doing these, these basic skills. hmm
1: mm-hmm. It
0: just beggars belief.
1: Yeah. Anyway. No, so we had all of that in our high school. We did have that. We had a whole horticulture class on like yeah. learning basic stuff. So I remember those because it was just it was different, right? All of a sudden you're exposed to different things in school. And and I liked it. I was also, I was the kid in school that got very involved with leadership. Early. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 when I got accepted to do like a week long leadership retreat. Um, I would say that probably was more pivotal in my life than I ever realized. I think it is an incredibly, an incredible experience to expose 12 and 13 year old kids who may be full of doubt about who they are as a person into a leadership week. And we went, some, we went to a location probably two hours away from where I was. Um, I didn't know anybody. And we all, like, we all had, I think there was maybe a couple of kids per high school that made it through. Um, and I, I literally would say that was probably a life-changing experience. I just didn't know it at the time.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So so they give you all these command tasks and stuff like that, I guess. Um, problem solving. Yes. You're in charge of this this, yes. this. exercise. Everybody has to listen to you. you 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 come up with a plan,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you, you lead
1: them. And And how do you get them to work together? Right. Like it's so leadership is like, leadership is not about us. It's about how can you get your team to work together? Um, That was a big piece. The confidence, learning to speak, learning to um, trust yourself, like be okay with maybe getting it wrong. Like doing, doing work like that, (sighs) It it 100% shaped me. And then through high school, I was very much, um, I did play sports, but I was very much involved in the leadership aspect of school. So grad council, students council for a number of years um, and just involved in a lot of different things that involve leadership. And that was very pivotal in in my high school years. And I loved it.
0: Mm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so... You graduated. Mm-hmm. How did you graduate?
1: Um, honors. <laughs> and that was big. Well, are we? but, <laughs> well, here's the other thing. I'm pretty sure if, if I was ever to go through and actually be tested, I'm sure I was slightly dyslexic because I school was not easy for me, but I had a great work ethic. That is the that is the big piece of it. I had an incredible work ethic. I worked really, really hard um, to graduate with honors, and I knew if I wanted to take kinesiology, I had to um, I had to have an honors, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I did. So I also met my husband in high school, and I'm still with him, which is unheard of anymore. But yes, we met in high school, both from the same small town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So. After high school then after, after the college university.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I went to University of Waterloo, took my kinesiology degree and um, graduated with my Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. Um, I'm very resourceful. So when it was like the last month, last couple of months, my last term of university, I knew I wanted to work in a physio clinic and I knew I wanted to find a physio that I could work and learn from. And I started looking outside of um, I was living in Waterloo. I went back to Telsonberg. I started to look, see if I could find. And I happened to stumble into a physios clinic that I um just applying for a job, she on the spot started asking me questions. We did an interview there, and I walked out with a full time job. So I had a full time job before I graduated, which was unheard of. Ah. But so, I was resourceful.
0: So, so you rushed ahead there. Yeah. What was what was your first term like? Why did you pick on um, Waterloo?
1: Um, when I picked on Waterloo, um, I applied to. Queens University in Kingston, I applied to Waterloo and I applied to Guelph. Waterloo at the time was the, what's that called? They were like, they were the pioneer in kinesiology. They were the pioneer. They had a co-op program. I, in my brain, I wanted to be part of the co-op program. I wanted the experience and I wanted to go to the school that was the best in kinesiology at that time. That's what I wanted. And so I applied to all three of those. I got all three, and I took my first choice, which was Waterloo.
0: Because uh-huh. I guess that took its name off to um, after the battle. Pardon? Waterloo, I guess it mm-hmm. took its name after the battle. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the battle was fought on the, uh, let's just get it right, the 18th of July...
1: Eighteen fifteen. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not
0: going And an old nosy, sweet <laughs> bony. There you go. So, so the Duke of Wellington gave Napoleon Bonaparte a bit of a, a bloody nose at Waterloo, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there were a few eagles taken that day, and uh, the British, along with the uh, the Bluchers. Uh, <laughs> German brigade kicked, uh, kicked old nose uh, bony out, and uh, we had a result. And that finished up the uh, the Peninsula Wars, basically. So that will teach him to to leave Elba. It's all good. It's that's all there, good. It's it? there. <laughs> yeah, it's there. It's all
1: good.
0: It's, it's all good. History. So, so that's that's where your Waterloo got its name from, which is um, in Belgium.
1: Yes that I have that I did here I don't know all the details though there you go
0: there you there's go. a little
1: bit of, yeah little bit
0: of detail. thank you thank you so what was the first term like was it a big university one of these massive very big campuses?
1: very big it's it's actually a very big university University while it was a very big university big campus big um, it was overwhelming I'm not gonna lie I remember it being very hard um mm. I lived in an off-campus residence. I didn't get into the residence on campus. And in an off-campus residence, um, it's a really tough way to go for university because at least in an on-campus residence, there are some rules. Off-campus, there are not. And there were parties until, you know, six o'clock in the morning on a Monday night and Tuesday. (laughs) A lot of my, the, the building that I lived in I think there was 18 women on that floor that I was on and maybe uh, no offense like but maybe a couple people who were in science um the rest were in you know english and different different um programs arts programs um I think we went from 18 no joke, to maybe six to eight on our floor by Christmas. That's how many failed. Wow. It was very, so it was very challenging to keep up with my workload. My class hours, I think I had between my labs and my classes, um, I probably had 30, 33 hours of class a week, whereas I'm now living with people who have like nine to 12 class hours a week and they're not going. Um, So it was very challenging But again, I learned to just lean into work ethic. I learned that I was a morning person. So I was, you know, it sounds really, but I was the student that was at the library when it opened at seven, because if I could get two hours of work in, then I would do what I could. And then at the end of the day, I still am that way. At the end of the day, I was done. And so I didn't do a lot of work at night. I didn't pull the all-nighters like a lot of them did because that's not how I learn. And I just found ways that work with me. But my workload was incredibly heavy. Um, I think by Christmas, we probably... I think that we lost about 20% of our students because the workload was so heavy. And it was a Bachelor of Science degree in kinesiology. So my program was biology, physics, um, chemistry, biochemistry. That was, that's what I took for the first, first, um, first term, first year. And then we started to get into other aspects. So then I took anatomy. And at that time, because at University of Waterloo, there is a ophthalmology program. We actually had cadavers. So I actually worked with cadavers in my second year and loved the learning so much that I became a TA and I taught, um, cl- helped teach classes in, um, in anatomy for the next uh, two years. So I had three years in the anatomy labs.
0: Wow. So did that help pay for your education as, as well?
1: It did. It did help pay. The other thing that I did do, because again, I'm resourceful. um, You know, my parents didn't have a lot and they're like, this is, this is all we can do. So I knew a lot of people who would work in, you know, a restaurant or a bar, and I just didn't want to be doing that because of my time. So during that time, I found that through St. John's Ambulance, I was able to take my instructors for first aid and CPR. And I could teach first aid and CPR. So on Saturdays and Sundays, I would run classes. And at that time, so now we're talking like 1989 to 93. I think they paid me like $25 an hour, which was a lot as a student. And I could then work, you know, 16 hours on the weekend. And make half decent money. I could pay for my schooling, but that also meant that I didn't have weekends to do schoolwork. But that's what I did. That's how, that's that was probably how I put myself through university. And then in the summers, I actually because I came from farm area, I worked in tobacco. So I I worked in tobacco like pretty much when school was done until um, I went back to school.
0: Mm. Yeah. So,
1: what did you do in tobacco? Um, pardon? Cigarettes. Yeah. Cigarettes.
0: Yeah. I don't use that word in America, do they? Abacts.
1: No, no, I just Abacts don't. In England. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I never did smoke. It's not. It's not for me. But um, that's what we did as jobs, and that's how. Mm. That's how we did it. Um, I worked at the kiln. At the kiln, and with the kiln at that time, in the beginning, it was like. Um, stick kills that they would put the, the leaves down they would get sewn onto the stick the stick would go up the elevator into the kiln and then you'd pick up any of the dry leaves and then once they had dried then they would be cured and that was done separately. And then over time, they moved to bulk kills and bulk kills were very different. It was like, literally, you just put them into this bulk area and then it went into the kiln to dry. And so I did that for a number of years to help myself put myself through school. Um, And I mean, even then I can remember vividly, we got paid $75, $80 a day. You know, as a student working seven days a week, that's that was a lot of money and that helped to pay for school. So I was able to, for the most part, I realize it's relatively speaking, it's more money now, but for the most part, I was able to graduate fairly debt-free because I worked myself through school.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Very commendable, that. I mean, so many kids come out of, of, of universities nowadays, even over here. With massive, massive debt. How do you start likely to get the chance to pay off?
1: They'll never get it paid off. How do you how do you start with like between, you know, yeah. 70, 80, 90, $100,000 in debt before you've even you don't have a job yet? Yeah. And yeah, that's definitely it's I'm grateful for that. My husband had ten thousand dollars of school debt that took us probably, you know, a number of years to pay back, but it was paid back. But yeah, that that was why, yes, my parents helped me with some basics, but then that was it. The rest of it was I had to figure it out myself, and I'm happy that I found ways to do it. So it wasn't easy, but I know it was all part of the process of learning to the discipline. Ah. Mm -hmm. So now we get to,
0: you graduated university Mm
1: -hmm.
0: with honours, or you you just
1: probably not honors in university, probably cl- Well, close. I was close. I don't think I was actually honors because the reason I remember that is I tried to apply to medical school. I had in my brain, I wanted to be a doctor is what I wanted. And so I applied to medical school twice, uh, three times. I even went back and took some extra credits while I was working to try and increase my marks. But I think if I was honors I was just barely, like 82, 81, 82. But in order to get into medical school at that time, it was like 86 to 90 you had to have, and I just wasn't there.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you managed to secure a job Mm -hmm. um, back in your hometown.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, I did. So is that back living with mum and dad?
1: No, no, no. There was something about my generation, and I think it's fair to say this, like when I left at 18, I don't know if I went back. I think I, I think I just, if I would have gone back, I went back for one summer and I worked full time while I was there because there was no, there was no coming home for summer and like sleeping in and that was just not even an option, which is fine. But that was, (laughs) yeah. I don't know how many kids I hear nowadays say, well, it's my summer. I need, I need that time for me. And I'm like, Yeah. yeah, that's not how it worked. Yeah.
0: No. No. Yeah, I mean the 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 current generation needs a bit of a wake up call.
1: They do. Absolutely, they
0: do. I mean, just biggest belief what they're expecting, and and uh, can't see them get it somehow.
1: No, we're not setting them up for success, but that's another story.
0: Mm. So, what was the first job like then?
1: Um, My first job was I worked in as a kinesiologist with clients in physical rehab, post rehab. So they were, you know, motor vehicle accidents. They were, um, work injuries. They, I had to problem solve on the spot. And I liked that. Like I liked having to figure things out and helping people to get back to what their job was. So at that point in time, um, I worked there for probably, um, five, six years, maybe. And yeah, probably at least that. And I worked there um, full-time. I, I, it was a great experience. I, I had a lot of friends who in kinesiology were working with physiotherapists and they were literally just making ice packs. They weren't doing anything hands-on. And I was with my physio. I was learning a lot. So I definitely learned a ton in those first years. And it was a really good experience.
0: So, did you end up uh, being a a physiotherapist yourself?
1: No, I did not. No, I did not. Um, No, I. After working in that area and seeing how there was a lot of holes in our in our system with physios and how things were done, that I knew that's not the route that I wanted to go. Um, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I continued working. In my um, in my field as a kinesiologist, like I sat for a number of years until I had my own kids, and then I decided to do something slightly different. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Yeah.
0: Did you do slightly different?
1: Well, I decided at that time they offered something back through the University of Waterloo where I could take a certification to really build my own. Um, it was like a certified health professional program. So it was like, um, like a personal trainer, but definitely with a number of different, um, credentials that went with it. So I went through all this testing and then I decided that I wanted to start my own business to run my own personal training studio in Tilsenberg at that time. Because what I saw was there was a gap. People would finish their physiotherapy. And so they were done according to the standards of what was required from the physio, but they weren't ready to go back to their job yet. They weren't strong enough to go back to their job yet. And there was this gap in the system that I thought, well, maybe I can offer something along that lines to provide people with support. So I did that for probably two to three years. And so I was running my own business. Now all of a sudden I had two small kids, but I was, I liked what I was doing. I was really building out um, and personal training was very new. Still, that was not something that was even existing. Um, So I got to work with a lot of different people and my focus was much more about physical rehab and helping to rehab through injuries.
0: All right. So, so you kind of, Take it a step further from the physios, where mm-hmm. you, you you take what they've done and then you build upon it to, to build up people's strength to 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 sort of yeah get them back to where they were before they had their injuries.
1: Yes, because physio requirement was very much say that a person had to do this thing for their job. And then you spend all the time in physio to help them to do this piece of their job. But now they have not been working for four months. They're not doing anything else. They're not strong. And so according to standards, they're ready to go back to work, but they weren't ready. And so that's where I started to work in in that area. And I really liked it. Mm-hmm.
0: So were you quite successful then? How did you get funding for it and, and how, did, how did you get paid? Was that was it through the, the health system where they've come out at the, the end of?
1: Some. Some came through system. A lot came through personal. People would pay themselves and they could get reimbursed at sometimes depending on what kind of benefits they had at their own work or they just paid out of pocket. And that was the start of people kept saying that no one's going to pay out of pocket for this. Well, it, apparently they do because it's a very big thing now. Um, you know, personal trainers, I want to be like strong as I can, et cetera. Um, but as a kinesiologist, it was like, I just, I just wanted to brand myself that this was different than personal training. I was able to add my whole science background to it to help you to be safe while you did things and help you to get back to work. So that was the start of me building my own businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how long did you do that for? You said about three years.
1: I did that for about three years, and then we moved from Tilsonburg to um, Waterloo. We moved to Waterloo in 2001, which is where we are now, and we moved up here. I was able to get a job at A Good Life, worked at A Good Life gym for about a year. Um, I didn't like working for big corporate Just to be honest, he didn't like it. <laughs> it was all about sales numbers. It was not about service. It was all sales, everything. And I get, I learned a lot about sales. I did learn I a lot.
0: Footfall through the door. Um, yeah. it's, it's not about quality. It's about quantity.
1: There was no quality whatsoever. And at that point, um, I was actually like sitting in the top of the company for sales. But it just got to a point where it's like, I can't sell anymore because I can't service them. Like I'm so, I'm, I'm working 40 clients a week and I'm still trying to meet demands. And, um, I understand how those businesses work, but I did that for about a year. And I was like, I just don't fit here. I can't do this. Um, I like to believe, and I still like to believe that you can give great service and make money at the same time. I don't think it's one over the other. Hmm. But I think service has to come first because those clients continually are your source of referrals. They're always your source of referrals. So the service, if you're not honoring the service that you're giving, then you're always looking for a brand new client. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So I did that for a year. And then at the end of that, so in 2002, I joined with three other people and we opened up our own personal training studio because I thought I always wanted to have my own studio, my own business. Like, And my kids were young. They were at that time, um, probably six and five. And you know, my husband was traveling and here I am running a business. It was a very busy, busy time. But I did that because I wanted the opportunity to create my own business too. But just like everything, I did that for about 7 years. And just like everything, you you don't know until you do it. And owning a brick and mortar business is not easy. <laughs> it is not easy. No. no no, it's not easy. So I did that for, like I said, seven years. And then I just had a point where it was like, I I don't know if I can do this anymore. We were managing a staff of 12. We still had um, business debt. We were seven years in and it was just a lot. It was a lot of pressure and a lot of caring that there was a part of me that was just like, can I just please go work and see my clients and not have to run everything. But that experience was important, right? It's important to to, yeah. to gain that knowledge. Um, and during that time, when I was getting ready to leave, I was just going to go and work as a contract at a different studio, just work with my clients, not do anything else. And then during that time, I also started teaching at um, our local college, Conestoga College. And they actually brought me in to teach a fitness and business entrepreneurship course which I really liked because I was able to take them through. We also have big dreams when we're coming in and we're into this fitness and it's like all these things I want to do, but just because you're really good at your skills in that field doesn't mean it translates into business. So few programs teach business and that, that is just a big missing gap in my, in my opinion. So I really got, I got to teach for three years at the college. And I liked that, that it was classes of, you know, 40, 50 students. Um, it was a lot of work. It was not easy. It was definitely not easy. Um, <laughs> yeah, some interesting experiences there. And, but it opened up my idea of, I really liked working with large groups and I was a very interactive teacher. Very much interactive teaching in lab type format, how to, you know, set up your clients for success, how to take them through basic programs, how to tell when they're doing something right and wrong. So I really enjoyed those three years. And then I just continued to do my own client work until 2020. And I that's I did that for I'm a number of years. Crashing down. You know what? Oh, I did. That it did. It actually did. Um, if I back up a little bit earlier than that, which is kind of where my story has really started from is that I, it was about hmm, 2012, 2013, 2014, we started experiencing, um, teen substance abuse with my, with our teens and it It just came out of nowhere, was not something that we saw coming, was not something that was an example in our house. It just just happened. It came. And we went through a number of very difficult years with our teens, very difficult. And I spent a lot of time very much hiding. And, but trying, trying to get answers and solutions, but just stuck in the shame judgment story of like, how did this become my life? Like, how did this happen? How can I fix this? What can I do? I continued on that path for a number of years until I finally found myself in a number of different Facebook groups, support groups, and recognizing that oh my gosh, I'm not the only person who's struggling with this. This is not, I am not alone. I am not, I didn't do something wrong. This is like, this is what's happened. And I started to share my story. And as I started to share my story from small stages, it grew into podcasts, into bigger stages, into collaborative books, into my own solo book in 2017. And so here I am still working full-time But I'm building something in the background. I just didn't know what I was building. I was just trying to find a way to share a story. And over time, probably by about 2018 and 2019, people are reaching out to me to say, but how do I share a difficult story? Like, I don't know how to do that. How do you do that? And that was the moment where I kind of smile and think the universe was giving me the message that was you're here to teach people how to share stories, like how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I had already had something started when the pandemic came and in my field, it literally wiped out a majority of our field. It was gone and it didn't come back. It, it didn't come back. And, um, our field, because I was a regulated health professional, we had, that meant we had to pay our, you know, $2,000 in dues every year in order to stay regulated. We were ordered off of work in, on March 17th of 2020. And by August, we still were not working. And so that's when our dues were due. And, I just was like, so wait, we have to pay our full 100% dues and we legally haven't been able to work yet. This makes no sense. And I fought it. I did fight it for a while. And eventually it was like, then I guess I'm not going to continue. This is, I, I turned 50 that year and I thought maybe the part of the bigger plan is that I'm supposed to do something different. And so I started my business full-time in coaching and speaking and podcasting and writing. And that's when it all changed. And it's been, I've been on that track since uh, 2020.
0: So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about your podcast.
1: My podcast is called "On your choices, On your life. Um, I started in 2017 when my book was releasing and I felt very called to start to share stories. The reason is, is I felt at that time that we weren't talking about the difficult things in life, right? We were just not. And there's this stigma behind all of the, I don't know how to share a story and whatever it was, whatever I'm going to think of me. And I, I remember saying to a counselor at the time, that I cannot find a whole lot of resources where people are talking about these kinds of stories. And she said, maybe that's because you're supposed to. And that just started to open up a thought process for me that maybe I am supposed to. So when I decided to start the podcast, it was, let's see if I can share part of my journey and share stories of people who, who are open and ready to share their stories and what they're doing with it because of it. And we're into episode... I probably have up to like 450 recorded now. So we've been... There's no shortage of stories. Everybody has a story. Everybody does. Absolutely. Right? And I think that's why I'm so... Yep. That's why I am so passionate about stories and understanding the backstory. So even to tie it back to the beginning, when you asked me about history... When I can tie it to a story and understand part of the story, I love learning about all of all of that. I don't want to just memorize facts. I want to understand how did things get to where they were? How did it happen? What is the backstory that people don't want to talk about? And so I love those pieces of it. So that's my podcast now. And now, since 2020, I released three episodes a week: two are solos, one is an interview. And I'm continually blown away by the stories that cross my path. They're the stories that, like you, just you think no one talks about this these things. And I think it's so incredibly, incredibly important.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's part of what my... My podcasts are all about is, is is getting people's life story and how they got from where they started to to where they are today and 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 and, and their journey and it's mm-hmm. I think that's important, particularly for, for future generations because the reason I got into this in the first place was I was working with ancestry and I found my great grandfather who was a chief stoker in the Royal Navy, who lived just over in Portsmouth. Wow. In 1930. And I thought, oh, I'd love to hear what his story was like, how he grew up, how he went mm-hmm. in the Navy, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I don't have a time machine, so I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And then we got into lockdown, and I, I got to thinking, well, if I don't tell my story, it's mm-hmm. going to be lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's kind of gone on from there, and this is this is where I am now. <laughs> so that's all. I love it. In their stories.
1: I I love it, and I love like this is it's a very unique podcast because this has not been, and I and I love it because now I'm I'm even. I mean, I, when I wrote my book, I went back and I looked at a lot of my own stories and my own timeline, but even this conversation helps me to see like the leadership skills early in life have paid out the, the other things that I did, the challenges that I had certainly paid here. Like it, it all ties together when we actually look back at our stories, we just don't tend to see it.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. I think if, if, if somebody in the future can look back at, at our stories and and learn from it, because that's that's what happens with history. You learn from history. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people at the moment out there trying to change history. <laughs> you can't change it. You can make history, you can't change it. And Ooh, that's uh, a great sentence. What a great sentence. And that's, that's what I'm all about, is, is, is learning from other people's history.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I I love that. I love the concept. I do. I really do. I love the concept of what you're doing and how it's unfolding because I, I'm super passionate about sharing stories. I I wish I wish people had been sharing stories earlier because I spent probably four years thinking that I'd screwed up. I was a mom who had done it all wrong. Like, what what did I do wrong? Why did we deserve this? And if it could happen to me, like what? what was wrong with me? And that's all I could think of. I know that sounds very self-centered, but that's what I felt is that I'd screwed up. Okay. It wasn't until I started to really, started to reach into other groups and understand that there were thousands of other parents who were struggling too. But we don't know that because we don't talk about the difficult things in life. So when I decided to start the podcast, and I've shared this story before, um, but I when I decided to start the podcast and I decided to write the books... I wish I could say that I had full support of everyone around me, and that's not true. That's just not true. It's not true at all. It, it, they were scared. So
0: people hide from the truth. Yes, and particularly if it, if it's affecting those around you. Yes, it's really, really difficult to 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 bring a difficult subject out into the open.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and yeah, it takes an awful lot of courage.
1: Yeah. I, I think that would be my message for anybody who's listening. If you feel something pulled on you, like you feel like you're being pulled to do something, it doesn't have to, it might not even make sense to you. It doesn't have to make sense to anyone else. I knew, I knew in my heart that I was doing it for the right reasons. I knew I could do something good with a really difficult situation. That's what kept me going. I was not trying to exploit anyone. I was not trying to exploit my kids, their history, my, my family. I wasn't trying to, I mean, I come from the generation where it's like, we don't share difficult things. We don't talk about difficult things. We don't look weak. We smile, we pretend it's fine. And my answer was, well, that's how we got here though. It's not working. It's not working. So maybe we could try a different approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Try a different approach. If it's not working, try a different approach.
1: It's okay to try a different approach. And knowing what I know now, I'm so grateful. I didn't let the words of everyone else stop me from what I wanted to do because every single thing that I do now in my life that gives me so much fulfillment and that I love all started from learning how to share a story. Every single thing. Every single thing. So if I had to listen to every all the naysayers and all the people who had opinions, I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing now.
0: Mm.
1: And that's I think of the clients that I've seen come forward and share stories that would blow people's minds. They do it not to glorify their trauma, but to help somebody else. They're turning their pain into their purpose. They're doing good things in the world. I can't imagine if I didn't if I didn't do it. And and at the same time, When you learn how to share your story, you learn how to be in this space. You help yourself heal on a level that you can't plan on. I had no idea that that would help to heal me. And every time somebody would say, that's my story. That's my story. What it did was fuel me that I have to keep going. I have to keep going. And so I'm grateful all of it but I just want to share it that even when you have that download of the idea and that you want to do something and and maybe the impact is a lot bigger than you could have ever imagined don't let others that's their fears it's not yours don't let their fears stop you because you could be on the verge of creating something that is so beautiful that can impact and help so many people and that's what matters
0: absolutely
1: Mm -hmm.
0: well Marsha I've very enjoyed this last hour that has been a real inspiration.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Honestly, I, I have enjoyed this walk down memory lane, the walk that I have not thought about in this context for a long time. So I have very much enjoyed it.
0: You're most welcome. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories.